Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 13th, 2019. This is episode 2567 of the Survival Podcast. It's Friday. That means it's time for a listener, or I'm sorry, an expert counsel Q&A shows where you get answers from the experts. I've got a pretty good lineup for you today. Uh, here's what we got today. Doc Bones will be talking to us about carpal or ulnar tunnel syndrome. They're actually two different things. We'll talk a little bit about both of them. And J.R. Haley's going to talk to us about 80% lower AR builds. Uh, getting ready for winter during, uh, getting ready during winter for spring gardening with Jeff Lawton. Digital product delivery, uh, from a company called Send Owl with Nicole Sauce. Best procedures for concealed carry weapon holders during a traffic stop with former law enforcement officer Steve Wise. And how the hell do you quote-unquote get it all done as a whole school, homeschool fan with Mike and Sue LaPreeze? Uh, we'll be bringing all of that to you today. And my segment today is going to be on something called the Iron Law of Bureaucracy. And could we take permaculture principles and apply it to other systems and organizations to try to break the iron law. Well, I'll talk about how permaculture managed to do it, and then you can decide for yourself if that could be done with something like school systems or government or what have you. And it's um, if it's a state system, it's going to be centralized. And therefore, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to break the iron law. But good question from Tactical Redneck. And it's an interesting thing to think about in setting up our own resilient organizations rather than how do we convert other organizations to resiliency, which maybe we'd prefer those organizations weren't there in the damn first place. Let them atrophy. Anyway, before we get into all that, let's start out today with a quote of the day. Uh, since my segment's going to be on permaculture and Jeff Lawton's going to be on here, I, th I figured we would have uh, the man himself for a quote today, The uh, one of the co-founders of permaculture, and the guy that's done probably more for it than any play anybody else in the world, Bill Mollison, who unfortunately a few years ago passed away. Uh, but what a life the man lived. He said something one time, and it makes me wonder if it was in some way, whether direct or indirect, a response to another well-known man from the world of sustainable and regenerative agriculture, Matsunuba Fukuoka. Uh, Matsunuba Fukuoka said something to the effect of, before researchers become researchers, they should become philosophers. And I actually thought about that as a quote today, but... Then I remembered this one and thought it might be a more interesting discussion from the angle of this one. Bill said one time, I can easily teach people to be gardeners. And from them, once they know how to garden, you'll get a philosopher. By teaching a person to garden, you will, you will literally fabricate, create a philosopher. I think that's true. And I think it does hearken to what Fukuoka said, that you know researchers might possibly do better research if they were first philosophers. When we research, we get tunnel vision due to the scientific method. It's all about eliminating variables so we can test one thing. And for some things, that thing you know, known as the scientific method works really well. For complex living systems... How do you test 
one particular microbe's effect on how well plants grow if you've sterilized the system so that it is the only microbe there? And the answer is you can't. And that's what Fukuoka was saying, that if we come to research solely from the angle of let's eliminate everything except this one thing and have that type of tunnel vision, we can't understand the entirety of the system. Bill said the way you get a philosopher, though, is start out by teaching someone to garden. And I, this makes me think back to when I first started this show, and gardening was one of the things that kept me from, like, oh, I don't know, climbing up on a bell tower and thinning out the population. It wasn't really that bad, but it is, just to make a point, kind of, it was my sanity check. For those who don't know, when I started this show, I did the show for a year and a half in my car. And I started doing that because I was in my car in the mornings for a little over an hour, in the afternoon sometimes for close to two. Sometimes it was an hour, sometimes an hour and a half. It all depends on when I left and you know how many people tried to eviscerate themselves between where I worked and where I lived. And when I got home, I refused to spend more than a couple seconds talking to my wife or my son. I'd usually grab a beer out of the refrigerator and go straight out the back of the house, and I would water and tend and see to my garden. And in that, I would lose the anger of the day. I would become human. And I would begin to think and contemplate. In other words, I would begin to be a philosopher. And then I could deal with the burdens of being a father of a teenage boy. Then I could deal with the burden of being a husband who was working too much, whose wife felt he wasn't around enough, and try to make her feel better about that and explain again how it would only be a limited matter of time before it wouldn't be this way anymore. But had I walked in that door with the world still on me, I would not have been a good father, and I would have not have been a good husband. It was only that garden that transcended me out of that being part of the world that we have created and fabricated and instead made me what I really was and put me back in touch with it, a, a piece of the world that is real. I am as native to this planet as any other species or plant, and so are you. We are not a thing that is to be disconnected from the wilderness. We are not to be humans here and wilderness there. That is, that is not the way that we are to be. We are an innate, native, wild thing on this planet. We come with an ability to think and reason beyond any other living form as far as we understand them anyway on this planet, and therefore we bear a larger responsibility. The elephant doesn't know that it's destroying its own livelihood when it eats too many trees and pushes too many of them down. That's why the lion is there to occasionally take out a young elephant so that the system can remain in balance. We are able to break that. We are able to do things no other living thing can do because of our minds. And due to that, we bear that greater responsibility. It is in the garden that you find that part of yourself that thinks that way. And it is because you have time to think. You have time to be what you really are. In one level, you are being what you really are in the garden as you are in few other, few other locations in the world. Because your hands are in the soil. You are breathing air that smells like soil instead of gasoline. You are working with nature to cultivate food and fiber and medicine. You are being the innately horticultural being you are meant to be. But it is not the doing of that that is the philosophizing, right? <laughs> what was that in uh, 
dodgeball, right? Philosopher. Oh, look who's a philosophizer. Um, no, it is, it is in doing that that one connects to the point where one's mind is allowed to open up. And you start asking questions. You start thinking like a real human being. That's why I love the garden. Anyway, just thought maybe that would get us on the right foot as we step off into today's journey with the expert council. And uh, first we're going to talk about something that, well, it could affect gardeners, but it definitely, uh, the gentleman that wrote in is an electrician. And that's the kind of work that you see. There's a lot of computer-centric uh, work will have conditions like this. But there's actually two conditions. One's not, one is known as carpal tunnel. It's more known, and one is carpal ulnar. And there's actually other repetitive motion Uh, problems that can come up. And I can tell you, when I was in the cable industry, and I'm talking about like data cabling, voice cabling, uh, especially guys that spent their whole life doing a lot of splicing of you know multi-pair cable, 50-pair, 100-pair, 300-pair cable, uh, punch-down work, large-block punch-down work where you have these huge cables coming in, and it's all day long of wiring these these you know two two cables at a time into this thing and doing punch-down work or uh, that same type of work doing a technology called wire wrapping with a little gun, and you strip off each wire. I did this when I was young, you know, and you put it in the gun, and you put it on a thing, and you turn it and zip, and it wraps around the pin i they probably don't even do that anymore or uh doing uh, huge numbers of coaxial connectors and things like that uh, in central office facilities uh that was a, a common problem a lot of older guys that i worked with had had surgery for either called carpal tunnel or carpal ulnar but what about a shit at the fan scenario or how do we avoid this in the first place or how can we deal with it maybe without surgery with all that in mind doc bones tell us about this uh It's somewhat serious condition. It can be really, really painful and really, really disruptive. Hey, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. Together with my nurse practitioner wife, Amy Alton, we're the authors of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook. Now in its 700-page third edition, Also, our latest best-selling book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, A Layman's Guide, and the designers of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Ryan, who writes, Doc Bones, I've got pain in my little finger and wrist on my dominant hand. I suspect some sort of carpal tunnel-like issue, but want to know, what do we need to do to plan for and treat injuries like this when times get tough? I will be checking with my doctor to make sure it's nothing major, but wanted to hear from the expert on this. Here's a background. I work construction as an electrician and do put a lot of stress on my hands and wrists every day. I can't think of anything specifically strenuous that I was doing to bring this on, but have had trouble in the past with carpal tunnel syndrome, as well as a ganglion cyst in my right dominant wrist near the base of my thumb. It's been about three years since I last had this level of pain in my hands or wrists. I appreciate the insight. Ryan, pain in the little finger is caused by irritation of the ulnar nerve, which serves the little finger and the outer side of the ring finger. Nerves and blood vessels have to pass through the wrist to get to the hand, and some of them go through the carpal tunnel, which is a ligamentous sheath that can cause pressure on the area. Carpal tunnel syndrome is a well-known condition that causes numbness, tingling, and discomfort in the hand and maybe even the arm, caused by compression of the median nerve, though. Your discomfort is caused by the ulnar nerve, not the median nerve. 
Ulnar tunnel syndrome is carpal tunnel's lesser-known cousin. Like the median nerve passes through the carpal tunnel in your hand, the ulnar nerve has to pass through something called Guillain's canal at your wrist. You might even hear your doctor call it Guillain's canal syndrome. That's G-U-Y-O-N. It can cause pain, numbness, and loss of function. In the early stages, you may notice numbness or tingling on the side of your hand by your pinky and ring fingers. It may feel like they're falling asleep. Your hand might also be numb when you wake up from time to time. And as it gets worse, your wrist can begin to hurt. The most common cause is something you've dealt with in the past, Ryan, a non-cancerous growth called a ganglion cyst, although it would be in a different position. Other causes include twisting the joint a lot or doing any type of motion with it over and over. It can also result from working with your hand bent down and out. Bicyclists and weightlifters sometimes get it due to constant grip pressure. Other causes, you can also get it as a result of a wrist injury or arthritis. A broken bone in your wrist called the hamate bone can also bring it on. This bone is sometimes broken playing baseball due to trauma or stress while batting. If you play golf, you can break it if you miss the ball and slam the club into the ground. I assume that happens during the swing, not because you got mad at the ball. I don't know how old you are, if you've dealt with arthritis, or if you play golf or baseball, Ryan. But you know what? I think an x-ray would be a common starting point for an evaluation to rule out some kind of traumatic or stress fracture. Most likely, it's going to be negative. You'll be then examined to see if there's any weakness or numbness in the area. Treatment depends on what caused the pressure on the older nerve. If wrist position is to blame, you're going to need to move your hands often or try a padded brace to keep your wrist straight. Over-the-counter medications like aspirin or ibuprofen for pain may help. Make sure you have lots of these drugs in your medical storage. In survival scenarios, you can get aspirin-like pain relief from the green underbark of willow, poplar, and aspen trees. They contain salicin, which was used to make the first commercially produced aspirin in the 1880s. Other than that, hand and wrist exercises to strengthen the muscles may help and certainly don't require any high technology. In normal times, though, get checked out by an orthopedic doctor and or neurologist. A number of different high-tech tests like electromyelograms may give you more information. Might as well use the technology while it still exists. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to fill those holes in your medical storage by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of health savings account eligible medical kits or some of our books and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets a discount off everything in our store. And subscribe to our website at doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So next up, I have a question for uh, J.R. Haley on 80% lower uh, AR builds. J.R., take it away. Hey, TSP. J.R. here with the Expert Council, answering your questions on guns, gun gear, and all things firearms related. Our question today is from Chris, and he would like to hear my thoughts on 80% lower firearm builds. Chris, I think this is a great topic to do an overview for the TSP audience, so let's dive right in. First piece to handle is what is an 80% lower? An 80% lower is poised to become the lower receiver of a firearm, rifle, or pistol, but the milling to complete that process has not been accomplished. It is manu- In its manufactured form, it's not a firearm. 
That process is left to the end user to complete. The term 80% lower is really a marketing term to denote all of that and doesn't necessarily mean that the manufacturer has completed 80% of the milling. The basic premise is that part of the lower receiver, where the trigger is housed, is a solid piece of polymer. It's basically impossible to place a trigger and a hammer in that section, and it it just doesn't exist for it. That's why these 80% lowers are not classified as firearms. Once the area is milled out by the end user, then it becomes a firearm, just like buying a normal lower receiver that is waiting to have all the parts, like the trigger, the hammer, the magazine catch, and so on, placed inside them to make them fully functional. So that all sounds like a lot of work, so why would anyone want to do this? Well, there are a few reasons for that type of project and what it appeals to. The first one, folks that enjoy DIY builds and tinkering. This is right up their alley. You get to work with different tools and likely add tools to the collection, learn and learn and hone a skill set. And many of us enjoy the satisfaction of bringing a project like this full circle that you can enjoy for the rest of your life. The second reason, a lot of people say to save money, or at least that's kind of the fable on it. Can you really save money by doing it on your own versus buying one yourself? Yes, but you need to build several after buying all the tools and jigs to get that return on investment capital that you put into it. And you're going to have to target some of the more premium options with your build than just a basic setup. I mean, from a company like Anderson Manufacturing, you can find their blank aluminum AR-15 lowers all day long for $39.95. 80% lowers that you still have to do the work on run anywhere from around that same price to over $100. And, you know, to be fair, those completed lowers like that or blank lowers that are milled out, they have, they have that same price point swing. So on to the third reason. You don't have to fill out an ATF form 4473. This is a form that you complete when you purchase a firearm from your federal firearms license holder, like a gun shop or a big retail store. For some folks, this is very appealing to them, and they like the polymer route as an option to get around filling out that form. This kind of leads to the national news scary term of ghost guns. If you hear that term today, they're likely referring to the home-produced firearms from the 80% lower market. In the past, it's been used to reference filing off the serial number of a firearm, but today they use it to talk about how dangerous untraceable firearms are, which is really a narrative and a scare tactic to push for full gun registration across the U.S., which kind of leads us into talking to a quick discussion about legalities. You know, and please know, I'm not able to do legal advice, obviously, nor am I doing that here. I'm just relaying some of the understanding. So one of the reasons this market has come about is that under the Gun Control Act of 1968, Americans can actually manufacture their own firearms for personal use as that term firearm is defined by the ATF. Now, selling or transferring that personal use firearm is a whole different ball of wax that you should look into referencing what happens to those firearms when you die or maybe you lose your firearm rights. At the very least, you need to protect the people that would inherit your firearms collection and would have no idea what trouble they might be getting into. Say they want to sell the AR-15 
that they inherited from you to a local gun store. First thing that gun store is going to do is look at the manufacturer's marks and serial numbers. So don't put your loved ones in that situation. Figure out the laws and a game plan for what to do if you're going to go down the self-manufacture path and how those firearms can be transferred or disposed of um, in the case of your passing. So with all that laid out, are 80% lowers really for me? Well, for JR, yes. Man, I have been taking things apart and putting them back together somehow with a pile of spare parts sitting there ever since I can remember. I like tinkering. I like do-it-yourself. I really do. Here's my catch, though. All, and I mean all of my firearms designating for fighting, are left straight from the manufacturer, with the only changes being sights or optics, a light. In the case of my shotgun, it's got a side saddle ammo carrier, and then for my AR-15, it's an ambidextrous charging handle. That's it. Otherwise, they are bone stock from a quality manufacturer. A firearm that I assemble myself will be for recreation, utility, or sporting purposes. I, I personally won't use one for fighting or hunting. I would not do this to save money. And I personally would not do this to avoid filling out a 4473. I think the niche for this is the do-it-yourselfer looking for a fun challenge and an interesting project. I think it's a great project for a parent and a kiddo, a kid that was like me that was always wanting to build things. A project like this really sharpens the critical thinking skills, and there is plenty of room for area to gain that wonderful thing that we call wisdom. Okay, guys, thanks for the question, Chris, and thanks, Jack. Really appreciate it. So that's kind of my philosophy in a nutshell. I completely agree with JR. I've already always seen like 80% lower builds as something you do because you want to. Not because you're avoiding a form or trying to save money. I, I think that a guy, I watched a guy do one on a forum one time and he compared it to what he could just go out and buy. And in the end, he saved less than a hundred bucks for the equivalent. So, um, that's probably not worth it from a financial standpoint, you know, if, unless you're going to build a hundred of them or something, you know, um, it is, it is something I think though, that the more you've done on a thing, the better you understand the thing that we're talking about. So I think you can become a better, you know, garage gunsmither, uh, a better AR owner and servicer in general, uh, if you do this, just because you have more knowledge of the in, the entire system from from taking part in some level of its creation, and I think it's a cool thing, um, and I know it's a business opportunity for some people too, because since you can sell an eighty percent lower uh, without FFL, um, some people do engrave lowers, so you you sell eighty percent lower. I think Brian Black, I don't know if you ever did it. He was talking about doing it with the ITS logo on it for. Uh, you know, imminent threat solutions, and it was a pretty cool idea. Um, I guess my thing with that is if you really thought there was something to it where you could make some money based on some sort of brand affiliation, um, uppers are not guns. So an engraved upper would, you know, anybody would have already had a lower 
pretty much drop it on. So I, I don't know that there's that much there to that either. But it's it's interesting, and I, I do think it is again just something you do because you want to take that level of control. Uh, next up, we have a question for Jeff Lawton on. Uh, getting ready for your spring gardening in cooler climates during the winter and the things you should be doing. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here coming to you from the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan. And um, I have a question here about preparing for spring in the cold U.S. winter with all your variations of almost tropical in South Texas and Florida to mild in North Texas where Jack is to very cold up near the Canadian border and beyond, I suppose. So that's a USDA Zone 6 and beyond. So what you really need to do is, is pre-prepare um, for um, uh, all your seedlings you can grow early with glass houses and, and, uh, and polytunnels. So they're, they're in different degrees of, of, of intensity because when you get up in the really cold, you need a polytunnel or glass house that's hyper-insulated, um, so having something that's uh, um, even double-glazed and triple-glazed, of course, is a big advantage, and uh, thermal mass storage on the inside, so you've got heat gain, or even some kind of extra heater inside, uh, rocket stove mass heater or um, uh, rocket stove uh, bench heater or something like that can get you a much, much earlier start on seedlings. Now, of course, you have frozen organic matter in those cold climates, so you can have that stacked up ready to go and you can almost have it mixed if you've got animals you can have organic matter and manure actually mixed up in a pre-prepared compost pile um, that can start as soon as spring starts but you can also start it inside you might want it in another polytunnel glass house because it's a bit smelly to work with while you're doing your seedlings but it's all a go i worked in 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 denmark where some years the saltwater canals freeze uh thick enough to ice skate on so that's pretty cold um that was in christiania and um they had a, a municipal that's an alternative in a capital city community in copenhagen Christ christiania and um they um they actually compost all winter with in big polytunnels with uh, uh, bobcats turning over the compost and the heat of the compost warms the polytunnel. But like I say, it can be a bit, a bit pongy, can, can be a bit smelly. Uh, but anyway, uh, all those things are possible to give you extended heat through the winter and for a very early spring start. And then as you go further south, even in, um, you know, South Texas, Florida, there is an advantage to being in the polytunnel for early starts um, before you plant out in the garden so you can definitely you know get get in front we do that we're definitely subtropics in uh, zaytuna farm northern new south wales and we we use our polytunnel in winter and it's kind of useless in summer except for drying food maybe but it's still real useful in winter to get our seedlings up and get an early start going um, and, and we pull our sensitive nursery trees in as well, so our real tropical small trees, not big enough to plant yet, we pull them into the shelter of the polytunnel during winter. So there you go. Those are the best things you to do. Get your compost ready. Get your, your area pre-prepared for uh, your organic fertilisers. Um, and um, and uh, pre-prepare your seedlings to start early. And uh, you're off and away. And uh, happy growing. 
Next up, we have a question for Nicole Sauce, entrepreneurial question, of course, of course, I love, and a digital product question, which I also love, because I think the digital products in a lot of ways are like, well, they're kind of like printing money. I mean, once you have a product that's evergreen, you can keep selling it over and over, whether it's a video or a guide or an ebook or something like that at no real cost, but you do have to deliver it, and if you do not set it up the right way, then it's possible that it's just duplicated all over the place and then you've lost value and everybody that wants it can get it for free. And one way to sort of kind of get around that is through using a, a digital product delivery service. And there's one here I've never heard of before, but it seems to be fairly popular. It's called Sendal. It does quite a few things. And this person is asking a question to Nicole Sauce whether or not she should use it. Nicole, tell us about this service. Hey everyone, Nicole Sauce here from Living Free in Tennessee, and I have a question in from Jessica in Chicago. She says, my question is about the digital selling platform called Send Owl. Background is that I'm mulling over starting a passive income digital product, think planner and party printable side hustle. During my research, I came across this company as an option for a payment slash fulfillment platform for digital designers. Is this something you've heard of or worked with before? Have any thoughts on it? Am I better off sticking with something else, i.e. Etsy and the like? Thanks for your thoughts. Well, Jessica, my first question when I read this was, how are you selling your digital product? How are you reaching people, getting them interested in it, and converting them to sales? Because answering those questions first are more important than how am I going to fulfill the digital product that I produce? So whether or not to use Sending Owl or print them and have them on Etsy or use the digital product delivery fulfillment that's built into WooCommerce with a WordPress website, whether to do it any of those three ways is a lot less important than how are you finding people, how are you getting interested in what you do, and then how are you converting that to sales. That said, Send Owl is fine. It's it's not a bad platform. It gives you access to tools that make it easy to convert people to sales, right? You know, they go there, they find out about your product somehow, go to the link, click on it, pay for it, download it. And in their marketing, they're talking about increasing your conversions to sales because they want you to have sales, right? Well, <laughs> what they're not doing for you is finding the sales, And so what they're, it's a technology solution. So think of it that way and just make sure you know it's not a sales and marketing solution. So that's going to boil back to or go back to you asking yourselves the first questions with which is what am I selling? How do I want to fulfill it? Do I want to have to deal with it myself or do I want to outsource that to a company like Sendel and pay them 15 bucks a month to start with to do that for me? And then from there, does that free me up to do no more marketing and sales? And is it worth it? Because no matter what you do out of the shoot with Sendal, you're paying 15 bucks a month. There are alternative solutions. Etsy is not where I would go with what you're talking about. And Etsy, it's the same thing, right? It's a fulfillment platform for craft items. And they're not doing anything to sell your items for you. So if you don't get people interested in your items on Etsy and convert them to sales and develop your following there. Just throwing it on Etsy is the same as walking to the street corner and trying to convert people to Christianity by yelling, embrace the Lord. It doesn't really, it doesn't really do anything for you. So go ahead and use it. If you think it's a good fit for what you're doing, I would say if you are building a website, like in WordPress, look at WooCommerce 
as a shopping cart and they have a digital product setting there where people can just pay for and download something. See how that works. See which one you'd rather manage, right? Because the WooCommerce solution is going to take a little bit more of your time. The Sundowl technical solution for your delivery of PDFs is going to take a little less time and you just need to decide where to put your time in something like this. Cause I think that's the most important thing, but remember you are in charge of getting people interested, converting them to sales and driving them wherever you go. And I will say this as well. If you do use send make sure it is through your own domain name. Okay. So that people are going there first to your website to find out about you. And then that's just the fulfillment piece because what you don't want to do is build up a whole system on a domain you don't own and then you are subject to their terms. And then if they change the terms, you are screwed. Anyway, I hope this helps you get started, Jess. Sorry it took me a little while to answer this. I did get it a couple of months ago and I've been like sitting there looking at Sendal trying to decide what to say to you and I realized probably the best thing is to tell you how to evaluate any solution within the context of your business. And that said, I know that I build websites, but if you are savvy enough to have a WordPress website and have a WooCommerce shopping cart plugin installed, it's like literally as easy as marking it as a downloadable product and uploading the file. The only thing you may run into there if they're large files is how much data you can store on your web host. There are some ways around that too, but just to get started, you know, if you're already paying hosting... And it's something that's basically free and built in. It's a low barrier to entry. Just saying. Anyway, guys, I appreciate the questions. Keep them coming. Although I believe at this point, we're probably looking at next year before answers are coming out. If you want to check out what I do, you can see my website at livingfreeintennessee.com. And I did want to say... Wow, gift orders have been way up at hollerroast.com for coffee. I've got six seats left in the 2020 Coffee of the Month Club. So if you've been thinking about buying your loved one a Coffee of the Month, head over to hollerroast.com. You'll see that and our sample packs there in time for the holiday shipping is getting slow. So we have a December 18th cutoff for when we think it will arrive by Christmas, but If you live somewhere strange, like between me and Missouri, which I could drive to in a day, it may sit in Nashville for four days and it may not make it by Christmas. So get those orders in if you're hoping for coffee in time for the ho-ho-holiday. With that, guys, go out and make it a great week. Next up, have a question for uh, retired law enforcement officer Steve Weiss. He's recently gotten four Uh, answers back to me. He was kind of out of pocket for a while. He is back around. I would say Steve right now has no questions. So if you have a question that you think would be interesting to get the take of a law enforcement officer on, um, send it in. I don't know. Maybe some of y'all want to talk to him about how law enforcement might handle the issues going on in Virginia. Hint, hint. I'm just saying. Anyway, (laughs) with that, uh, this one is a little different. If you are a concealed carry uh, holder, and you're carrying, and then you get pulled over, and you're dealing with a traffic stop while you have a gun on you, what's the best way to handle that situation? Steve, take it away. Hello, Jack and T-Speed listeners. This is Steve Wise, answering your law enforcement-related questions. 
Remember, I'm a retired law enforcement officer and not your attorney, so please make sure you check your local laws and uh, seek uh, professional legal advice if necessary. I'm going to apologize for my lengthy uh, hiatus. I have moved uh, from one side of the state to the other, and I have been building a house, and I finally have an office. So hopefully I can get back to being more regular. Jack sent me a short note from Curtis via the MeWe chat, and where he asks uh, exactly uh, what to do in case of a traffic stop, both for concealed weapon carriers and non-concealed weapon carriers. Now, <laughs> this is kind of a loaded question in, in many ways, and yes, that's a slight pun for the concealed weapon holders out there, but traffic stops are the type of events that can lead to disaster uh, over some simple things, and since the traffic and stop involves people, we have all the garbage being carried by all the people involved. Yes, this includes the officers. We all can bring our garbage to the party. And what makes it even more dangerous is there's at least one gun involved in every traffic stop. So let's talk about some of the practical items in a traffic stop. Um, you know, the officer will have observed an issue. He's wanting to investigate. He may or may not be able to tell you a lot about what's going on as he approaches your vehicle. Your vehicle, let's think about this, is designed for you as the driver to see out of your vehicle. It's not designed for law enforcement officers or anybody else, for that matter, to be able to see into your vehicle clearly. However, if somebody in the vehicle tries to do something bad to the officer, like maybe try to turn around and take a shot at him, it's generally very easy for the officer to move out of the way and behind cover. While the person inside the vehicle cannot move very easily, from within the vehicle to be able to shoot that officer. So this part is, this is all part of what the officer is thinking as they approach a vehicle. The first officer's funeral that I attended uh, was for an officer shot uh, during a traffic stop. Uh, he was shot by a young kid. He was stolen a car down in Florida and came up to Georgia. Uh, we were in two-man cars, which was kind of unusual, but uh, one officer went down the driver's side, and uh, the victim officer in this case went down the passenger side. Now, we don't necessarily know exactly what the officer was thinking, but we kind of assumed that he walked up on the passenger side, saw it was a kid, and decided to keep walking a little bit further forward until he was basically on the front fender when the kid pulled a gun and shot the officer standing towards the front of the car. The other officer, who was still behind the what we call doorpost or, or behind the driver's door, was able to back up, return fire, and killing the kid. Now, I say kid here because, based on my memory, that, that young man was only 15 years old. So this type of encounter is in the back of every officer's mind when they approach a vehicle. And let's... Be realis realistic here. Let's add the time of the day, the location you're at, maybe the type of offense the officer thinks he observed um, when he's stopping the vehicle, the officer's knowledge of even where his backup is located. Uh, this will all change the way things are going to happen. So here's my general advice. when My advice when you're being stopped, and this is for everyone, stop in a location, if you can, where there's really good light, especially if it's at night. Don't unbuckle your seatbelt. Don't go reaching for your insurance paperwork or driver's license. Yes, we know you're going to have to get them. Roll down your windows. Turn on your dome lights. 
you are trying to give the officer the best view of what's going on inside your vehicle. A lot of vehicles have a little bit of window tint or the light reflecting off for even a sunny day, the light reflecting off the windows can block the officer's view. It's like looking in a mirror. So open up those windows. That can be a big help. Now, as the officer is approaching, place your hands on the steering wheel in front of you. Don't have to make a big deal out of this. And if you turn and face your palms towards you, and now your back of the hands are against your wheel. If you do this, the officer can clearly see your hands and that there's nothing in your hands. You can't hide a gun in the back of your hand. You can't hide a knife in the back of your hand. You can clearly see you're defenseless. So now the officer approaches, and this is when the decision processes have to start. All right, if you're not armed, you can kind of skip this part. But if you are armed, some states do require that you announce your weapon. Other states uh, will tie your license plate or driver's license uh, into the concealed carry permit registry. And so the officer will run your license or run your tag and he'll see that you have a permit. So you should research your specific state to see what you should do next. But in most states, you're not required to announce that you're armed. If you are required to announce and don't, then the officer runs your license plate or driver's license and it pops up that you're a CCW holder, a concealed weapons holder. Uh, they were probably going to ask you about your weapon and don't be surprised if they don't believe you. <laughs> you know, it's, oh, I didn't bring my, uh, my gun today, so I didn't tell you. Don't be surprised if they don't believe you. They may even take you out of the vehicle to validate that you don't have a weapon. All right, so if you're required or you make the decision that you feel better announcing that you have a weapon, you know, you may feel better just telling them up front, um, whether it's on you or in your vehicle. Make sure that once you tell them that, that you don't make any moves with the, the officer saying it's okay to do so. Don't tell the officer that you carry a gun, and then the officer asks, well, where is it? And you reach around to your waist to expose your gun. No, that's a bad idea. Or, oh, it's here in the glove box, and you reach. This will cause somebody to have a bad day. Actually, both of you are going to end up having a bad day. So if you don't announce and you're not required to, simply go through the traffic stop and only tell the officer you have a gun on or in your vehicle if you have to reach close to where that firearm is located. So the best example of this is you know, a lot of people carry the guns on their hip, and most people are right-handed. So if you reach back with your right hand to pull your wallet out of your right back pocket, guess what? You're probably exposing your gun at the same time. And so this could get you in trouble if you hadn't told the officer that you got a gun on. Now, it's a good chance that if you have it on your hip and it's a single officer, they'll never see it, even if you reach for your wallet. Most people are right-handed, they carry their wallet on the right side, but the officer can't see the right side if he's approached you from the driver's side. Remember I was talking about visibility earlier? Now, if the officer is or has a partner, or the officer has decided to greet you through the passenger side of the window, which is not uncommon on the highways especially, um, it's very possible they could see your weapon on your side. Or if you're left-handed, you know, then you have that option, obviously, you know, that's obvious that your weapon is closer to the driver's side. So if at any point the officer asks you to leave the vehicle, this is another time that you need to make sure you know, let them know that you're armed, especially if it's on your person. And then follow their instructions. Don't 
don't push this. Just follow their instructions. It's, it's the best thing for you to do. Now, here's something I've told people for years. If, you know, if you are removed from your vehicle during a traffic stop and you have a weapon, you will be handcuffed. You will be laid on the ground. You will be placed in the back of a patrol car, and you're going to be searched before you put that patrol car, because they're going to make sure there's no guns on you or any other weapons or drugs or anything else. Then they're going to search, and you're probably going to have weapons pointed at you during this whole time. Then they're going to search your vehicle. And you're going to say, what? Why? How can they do that? Well, the passenger's car compartment or within the wingspan of the passengers that are in the vehicle it is actually legal under a court decision called Arizona v. Gantt. And it's uh, sometimes referred to as the vehicle being armed or the vehicle, you know, something like that. So just a little note, gun-related items like a gun case, um, you know, your handgun case, your gun rug, uh, ammunition, even brass, other gun parts laying around in the vehicle, that's enough to say that the vehicle is armed. And will justify a search within wingspan. So just keep that in mind too. Keep that stuff in your trunk or in the back of your car covered with a blanket or something. There's no reason to advertise it. So moving on. If you are only charged with a traffic related offense and they've, and they've pulled you out of the vehicle and they've pointed guns at you and they handcuffed you and they thrown you in the back of the patrol car, if you've only committed a traffic offense and you have no other offenses against you, they're going to dust you off, they're going to unhandcuff you, they're going to release you. They're going to return your weapon. Now, when I had to deal with this, I would field strip the weapon and stick it in the trunk of the car, or at least pull the magazine out or dump the ammo out and put it in the back of the car and just tell them, hey, don't put it back together or don't put the ammo in it until I'm gone. Now, I know it might be unpleasant. You might be a bit dirty. And if anybody saw you getting in and out of the patrol car, you could be highly embarrassed. But ultimately, everybody goes home safe. I'll also say that most officers won't bother to go through that full process. They may ask you where the weapon is. Uh, down here in Georgia, it's not uncommon for people to be armed, so it's not a big deal. If you're in New York or New Jersey, where people aren't normally armed, it's a big deal. And your response is going to be totally different. So, but just remember, if the officer asks you where your weapon is, just tell them and then don't go moving towards it. Don't reach for it. Don't grab at it. Don't offer it to him unless he specifically tells you to. Uh, it will really boil, boil down to what I said earlier. When was the last officer involved shooting in that area? What time of the day is it? Am I in a location known for violent crimes? Did the type of offense committed when the vehicle was stopped and in the officer's knowledge of where his backup is located? And many other wild cards. This is all going to change the way that traffic stop is going to go. So I hope this answers your questions, and I'm sure Jack will have some comments to add there as well. I'll send it back to you, Jack. Next up, I got a question for Michael and Sue LaPreeze. How the hell, as a homeschool family, do you get it all done? Huh? Have you ever thought about how much work it really would be? Mike, Sue, how do we get it all done? This is Michael and Sue Lepreeze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSP community. Today's question comes from Karen. She's from Virginia. Question. How do you get it all done? Details. 
I'm a stay-at-home mom and new to the TSP community. My husband and I have four children ages 5, 3, 1, and 5 months, as well as six chickens and a dog. Our first year of homeschool was interrupted halfway through the bir- with the birth of our fourth baby. I'm in Virginia, so the laws are fairly open for homeschool, and there's no test for kindergarten. Part of me wants to throw in the towel and send her to public school next year, but the more I learn, I just can't. She, my oldest, is very fidgety, bug, dirt, and animal lover, works best outside in a chair, barefoot. She makes her own Pokemon, very creative, got a great imagination, things public schooling may not foster. Anyway, do you have suggestions on how to get it all done? Yes. The simple answer is you don't get it all done. You have to make choices. And baby number four is an excellent choice, but it's going to disrupt the flow of your day and your homeschool and your life for at least a year, maybe three years. Yes. So when you're grouping, especially a group of young children, small children together, we have a three, four and five year old right now. Um, It makes life hard. It's difficult because they consume a lot of your attention in, in, in great quantities. <laughs> so in a permaculture principle, if you consider zone one your your behavior as the mom, you're modeling and teaching, eating healthy food, and keeping a clean house. Not spotless. Yeah. And so, because you're going to need a lot of rest. That you're, any of the moms that have had a baby, you're going to need a lot of rest. Even if you're adopting a baby, it's a little exhausting because it's all new and you need to be really flexible and sleep when they're sleeping. Yes, one of the things is when the kids take a nap, I tell Sue, when, even with the little ones when we first adopted them, you need when they're napping, you need to nap. So here's a reality check. Don't have unrealistic expectations. So you need to design managing your stuff. And one of the things that we do to manage the chaos and trying to reduce the chaos is we have uh, like a lot closet. We have one closet with a, we have a latch on it that's up high that our 12 and 13 year old kids can get to the, the latch and open it. But for the younger kids, if they want something to play, say Play-Doh, it comes out of the closet. They get to play with that for a while. When they're done with that, and we might take one or two things out, but when they're done with those things, they've got to go back in the closet before anything else can come out. And those are the toys that will make a mess or that if you lose a part, it's no fun. We have plenty of toys like Duplos and magnet blocks and Tinker Toys that are out all the time. Because if you lose one, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So you want to do this managing of your stuff to reduce your stress. Because stress is going to lead to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to the dark side. And we know what happens then. <laughs> So our normal zone one in this instance would be zone two. So that would be the relationship with your spouse. So you have to design a plan so that your husband doesn't come home and watch Ellen and eat avocado toast. You want to help him participate. Or if your husband listening, you want to help your wife at night because you've worked and she's worked. It is hard work to manage kids. On both sides. So one of the things that we did early on, it took a while for me to figure this out, is Sue likes to wake up to a clean kitchen. And so what I would do in the evenings, and she might go to bed before I do, she normally does, um, I make sure that all the dishes are done. And now we have older kids that do the dishes, but when we had just little ones, like the situation that you're in, Karen, um, I would make sure that the kitchen was clean so that when Sue got up in the morning, she got up to a clean kitchen. So we grew up with stay-at-home moms, and our houses were both spotless. We're seven children each in our families, and it's just totally clean. The dads did not do housework at all. No. <laughs> yeah. So I, when I first started being a mom, I was like, how come I'm not keeping my house clean? How come this is so 
hard. And then we realized that our mom sent everybody to school. And when everybody left for school, they cleaned the whole house. My mom literally swept, mop, vacuum every floor in our house every single day. Yep. So one of the things you might have to do is you have to be flexible and adjust. So we used to record uh, for the podcast for TSP at around 9 o'clock at night, between 9 and 10. Uh, Sue and I normally go to bed between 10 and 11, and we get up at 5. And so what we realized was with the little ones in the house, it was too noisy to do that at night. And so now we're recording here at 5.30 in the morning. So you're not going to get it all done, but that's not a failure. Think about just your laundry, for example. You get all your laundry done Monday. It's 4 o'clock. It's folded. It's put away. As soon as that's done, somebody goes out and plays in the mud. Somebody wets their pants. Somebody spills milk all over themselves whatever, and it's not done. Same with the dishes, same with your homeschool, same with so many things in your life. So on Tuesdays, we have 26 kids come to our house for co-op. And at the end of the day, the moms want to know how they can help. And their help is take your little herds home with you, and we will quickly clean up our house. Because while you're cleaning one area, there's chaos in the next area. And that's true of the four kids. How many kids do we have right now? Six. Six kids we have right now at home. And um, it's just you've got to learn to adjust, be flexible, and manage that chaos. So your home, your love, and your life are the best place for your child to learn because nobody's going to have the passion to understand that they like to fidget. They like bugs and dirt. They love to be outside better than inside. Bare feet is yeah, bare- the favorite (laughs) (laughs) so sue almost always is barefooted if you're going to see sue especially around the house or in the yard she's generally without shoes on her feet so my shoes last a really long time but allowing your kids freedom even in small things and we have a daughter we adopted when she was three and every time we met her in the foster process before we brought her home and even the first few days we had her at home she had these really tight little braids in her hair that never came out And once we took those braids out, she never wanted them back in her hair. And at 10, she has this unrestricted... She's 13. 13. We've (laughs) had her for 10 years. She has this unrestricted, free-flowing hair that sometimes drives me crazy. But I understand where she's coming from like nobody else would. And school subjects. So you're talking about schooling and reading by five. I know a lot of people think that children need to read by five. Or eight at the latest. Or eight at the latest. Well, we had one who started reading at four. We've had others that started reading at 11. And an 11-year-old, when they start reading at 11, when they're 15, somebody isn't going to see them reading and go, oh, you look like you started reading when you were 11. Yeah, so my example of that is my brother has his master's, and nobody ever asks him for his high school diploma, which he doesn't have. It's not. That's not how it works. Once your kid reaches success... It's not the struggle of them getting there. It's that they made it there. Yes, yeah, so don't let the pressure to read eat up your time, right? So part of that is a lot of people get focused on that. Don't focus on that. Focus on the experience with your children at home. Because education isn't about when you learn something. It's about learning to learn, having these experiences that only you can give your child, and teaching them how to communicate their ideas clearly. So you're not going to get it all done. Ever. Ever. So this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com reminding you to reduce the stress in your life to increase the joy when you're designing the life you'd love to live. Back to you, Jack. All right, so my question of the day is an interesting one. It comes from uh, Tactical Redneck, and he says, Hey, Jack, I was listening to one of your podcasts 
talking about college and its bureaucracy, and I thought of an interesting question. How do you apply the permaculture principle of making the problem the solution to the iron law of bureaucracy? might be a little bit more of just mental masturbation, but I'm thinking it's an interesting train of thought that could be applied in a lot of places like government, uh, as always, thanks to the show Tactical. Um, if it, I guess it could be applied in a type of government that we would call the self-governance of an enlightened anarchy. Um, it absolutely, I cannot see it being applied in government at all. Because government is the the peak of bureaucracy, so let's start out with what is the iron law of bureaucracy and and kind of my take on it in the world of permaculture and why I think permaculture is so brilliant. So the iron law is from a guy named Jeffrey Pornell, who I believe has passed away now. I believe I heard that, or he might even put it on the air a couple of years ago. Um, but Pornell's iron law was that in any organization. The people that are most committed to the organization itself will rise up in the organization and set policy and procedure and things like that and get all the promotions, whereas the people that will uh, be most committed to the organization's mission, the thing that needs to be done, the field-level people, uh, will end up out in the field trying to do it and pushed away from the organization itself. Uh, as the kind of people that want to get things done, they are kind of repelled by uh, the concept of bureaucracy and, and, and rulemaking and things. They just want to get the damn thing done. That's what they're there for. And in the end, the organization will succumb to the iron law and only the people that are fiddly, faddly, pain in the ass, controlling pricks will be in charge of everything. And then the organization will become defunct and useless and mired in bureaucracy and bullshit. And that is what will become of any organization with any form of bureaucracy. And it's, as Pornell put it, he calls it the iron law. So that infers centralization. So the solution to something that has a problem due to centralization is decentralization, the opposite. And this is why permaculture is so brilliant as an organization, as a thing, as a concept, and we owe it all to Bill Mollison. We owe it all to Bill Mollison. So when Bill and David, and David Holgram is the other co-founder of Permaculture, came up with this whole idea and put out the first book on it called Permaculture One, there was a lot of people that wanted Bill to go and like trademark and own intellectually this word and this concept so that it could be controlled. And he said, because he understood the iron law, even though if he didn't call it that, that if that, if that were done... The universities would get a hold of it, and they would destroy it. They would ruin it. So he fought long and hard to make sure the word permaculture was owned by no one, meaning that it's owned by everyone. And there is a Permaculture Research Institute of Australia. There's a PRI here in the United States. There is some level of centralization around these individual organizations. And if you want to say you're certified by the PRI of Australia, which I am, for instance, then you have to do the things they say to be able to do that. But if I want to start Jack's Permaculture Institute of Texas, and as long as I don't claim to be affiliated with them, no one can say anything. And I can teach permaculture any way that I want to, including completely wrong. And all that can be done then is the market can judge me. If I start teaching that permaculture is putting poop on a stick and running around and touching your sister with it, 
I can do it, no one can stop me, but I'm probably not going to sell a lot of sticks to put poop on. And I'm probably going to go out of business because the market's going to market. And permaculture broke that, and that's why there are so many miserable people that fancy themselves permaculturists because they're bureaucrats and there's no place for them. There's nothing for them to do. And if they don't like what somebody's doing somewhere else, there's no recourse at all. They can go set up their own little permaculture thing, do whatever they want to with it, but if you have a group of nothing but bureaucrats, nothing gets done. There's a group a while ago that decided they wanted to change the standards for what permaculture certification as a teacher was. These are the things that you had to do before you were certified to teach a PDC. And some of them were some fairly large-name people. And they basically stacked it so that you would have to have, like everyone that was involved with it magically would have been qualified, and you would have probably had to go to them to get their blessing to get the things you were lacking for them to sign off on you. And everybody got in a wad about it, and oh, this is going to change everything, and I did an episode on it, I said, this will do nothing, because permaculture has broken the iron law, and they're free to do this, and I can say that only when you come to Nine Mile Farm and kiss the underneath of the right big toe of Spirico shall you be certified as a Spirico-certified permaculturist, and no one will do it because it's stupid, But no one can stop me. And that's what makes all the people involved with permaculture that are social justice warrior types and shit like that such miserable people. They're so angry and so miserable because they're more worried about telling everybody else what to do instead of going out and doing it. And the way things should be, etc. Ignazian. Sorry, don't get to do it because permaculture is a decentralized concept. It's like trying to say you own the concept of farming. Anybody's free to farm any way they want. Well, Bill created the term, and he decided as the term's creator. Is it because instead of being like some you know thing like the, the bullshit that Derveuses did, where they tried to claim the ownership of urban homesteading, which was already a thing, and even if it hadn't been, it's just two existing words. It wasn't like urban steading or something. They didn't come up with a totally new unused word. They just said, we're taking these two words and we're, we're trademarking it. Bill actually created a word. And permaculture, by the way, from the way it was developed by Bill, is not permanent agriculture. It's never permanent agriculture. It's permanent culture. Permanent culture. And he decided that no one would own it. They went to court to make sure no one could own it. And now it is considered a term. But when you want to know where it's from, you look back to the guy that created it, and he has his genesis point. And then you're free to take from that whatever you want. But anybody that really looks at what you're doing is able to say, well, you say you're doing it, but you are or you aren't based on that individual. And no one gets to decide other than the person decides to retain you as a designer or a teacher or an educator or buy your book or whatever it is, we all get to decide. That is the only way to break the iron law of bureaucracy. It's the only way. You can have bureauc uh, bureaucratic islands within a thing, but they can't be monopolistic or you will get the iron law. Because what happens... 
when you get a bunch of bureaucrats together and you got a couple people there with them that are mission oriented people that want to actually go out and like you know plant stuff and you know get business or whatever it is well they had off to do that and pretty soon they figure out that these bureaucrats are telling them how to do their job but they're not giving they're not getting anything from them they're not they're not useful in any way to them so they just go their own way and do their own thing decentralization So the only way I can see that you can break the iron law of bureaucracy within a government is have freedom of movement. Our founders tried to do that with the establishment of a republic, but in of itself it was limited. The federal government is one inherently limited component, limiting component to it. There are certain laws and rules and regulations that apply to you the same if you're in Texas or Florida or Pennsylvania. And then Texas and Florida and Pennsylvania all have their subsets of state-level laws. And then you might have a law or a code at a city or a county uh, or village level or something like that. And each of those have their own levels of bureaucracy. But the bureaucracy of a small town can only add to your misery. That's what I've said. You know, like the most tyrannical forms of government in our country are actually the smallest governments because they never do anything to push back. It's like a city says, you know what, that law that, 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 that Texas says applies doesn't apply in this city. They don't do that. And within a republic, due to supremacy, it's, it's, it's difficult to at least to do that in the court system. Doing it logistically is another matter. In some ways, it's what's going on in Virginia. And those that are cheering the concept of like Second Amendment sanctuary counties and cities in Virginia, and you think that's a great thing in violation of state law, It's not that much different than what sanctuary cities are doing with federal immigration law. I know one's constitutionally protected and the other one's not, but it really still is. It's on a level, to some degree, an anarchy. Well, the only way we can actually get to where we can break the iron law of bureaucracy is to have that type of thinking everywhere. What breaks the iron law of bureaucracy is freedom and liberty, and a free market. That's that's what breaks it. Individual choice. And that doesn't mean no rules. What it does mean is if I live here, and this is my property, my rules apply on my property. The only way my neighbor gets to say how I live is if somehow, like if, if I'm dumping oil on his land, now I'm breaking the nap, the non-aggression principle, I'm damaging his land. Otherwise, what I'm doing here is none of his business. The only way that that changes is if I and all my neighbors voluntarily entered into a pact, like an HOA or a POA. As much as I hate them, they're legitimate as long as everybody's there, agreed to the rules, and the rules aren't changed without somebody's consent. And I can leave. As long as we have that, then we can break the iron law of bureaucracy. Because there are companies run by multiple people, that don't have the problem with the iron law because everybody gets shit done in that organization. The more money that comes into an organization additionally, the greater potential for the iron law to take over because you can afford to employ people who don't actually do anything of value. And where is that more true than government? So I think the one place, dude, you can't really break it is in government. If you look at or the military, the military is government. The militias broke the iron law. But 
the Continental Army could not. The militia all served under voluntary uh, sign-up. The militias elected their own officers, and that officer would be in charge. But if that officer proved to be incompetent, you might even have to deal with his incompetence on this campaign or this particular day. But once everybody got together, once the, the, the shooting stopped, you know what? Tom's not working out as our freaking captain. And Tom could be replaced like that. No one had to ride home to the mothership or see what the general thought. The militias elected their officers. And when that officer was removed, they didn't take him out and shoot him. He just went back to being basically an enlisted, if you want to think about it that way. And they also did it from the standpoint of, you know, Tom's done a great job up till now. But what we're about to deal with is more in Bob's wheelhouse. Bob should take over command, and Tom graciously would allow it and just simply step aside, especially if he was in agreement with the consensus. You can't do that in the freaking military, in, in our military, but they did it in the militia. It is decentralization and voluntary association and no ability for a person over here to actually control a person over there. That's the only way you break the iron law. And again... Because that is the way permaculture works, that's where you have all these people that, you know, are, are they think permaculture is about correcting white privilege and bringing social justice to the world and Joel, Joel Salatin farms in a racist manner. I'm not making that up. That's an actual tenet some of these people have. Joel Salatin is a racist because of how he farms. I, I don't know. I, can, I know you're sitting there going, how does that work? It doesn't. It doesn't. But all the people that jump on that, and they refer to the existing permaculture world as a patriarchy, because most of the people that speak and teach in the world of permaculture are men, and worse than that, white men. But there's nobody stopping a black woman or a Native American dude or a gay person or a transvestite from teaching permaculture. Nobody's stopping that. The, the, the problem is, whenever anybody tries to put all that nonsense together, the iron law actually does work against them. When they try to mandate that kind of thing, they end up with nothing happening. And all the people that think it's a great idea, they don't spend any money on it, they don't spend any effort in it, they don't put any time in it, they just want to be part of it, but they want to be part of it as a bureaucrat. And it doesn't hurt nothing. Solely because they can't tell anybody else what to do. You can call a vote. You can get 80% of the people that say they do permaculture to say Jack Spierko is not a permaculturist and he can't say it anymore and we don't want him to do it. And Jack Spierko can raise a giant middle finger and say, screw off. I'm going to play with my permaculture ducks today and there's nothing you can do about it. And there is nothing they can do about it. That's the only way to break the iron law. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. We've also wrapped up another week and want to remind you that one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, where you'll find all of my reviews of items that you can purchase on Amazon. And anything you see there, I own it, I use it, and I've spent my money on it, and I'll do it again. I would not ask you to spend your money on it. That's just the way I run things. 
You know, I was thinking today, it is winter, and we are heading into winter. We had a question for Jeff Lawton about what you could be doing during the winter to get ready for spring. Well, if you have trees and shrubs and bushes, one thing you better be doing when they're dormant, and now in the next couple of months is the time, is pruning. This is the best time of year for pruning. Now, with backyard orcharding and stuff, we prune multiple times a year. We still prune in dormancy. And dormancy is when it's easy to prune because there's no leaves and stuff in the way. You can actually see everything, and it's easier to do. So now's the time for pruning. I believe that in your life you should own a pair of Felco F2 hand pruners. I believe it's like one of those things just like everybody should own a, a, a Ruger 1022. Everybody should own a pair of Felco F2s. Even if you have a little suburban backyard and you do just a little bit of pruning, they are the best pruners on the market. Here's the bad news. They sell for over $70. The good news is they go on sale quite a bit in the $50 range, and right now they're on sale for $47. Bucks. Two bucks less than I paid for mine. So you might want to pick them up, and if you've got somebody in your life that has the horticultural bug that does a lot of pruning and stuff like that, gardening, etc., they would love these. And uh, when you're looking them up, you'll see an associated product, a little leather sheath that comes you can get for them. It's made for them. I have that sheath, and I love it. It, it keeps me from losing my really expensive pruners. Uh, you can also get uh, sharpeners that are pretty inexpensive, and... I don't, I think you'd have to have pretty small hands for the F2 pruners to be a bit big for you, but some, some, especially females seem to feel they are a bit big handed. They have another pruner called the F6. I have a link for that in the show notes for you as well. And uh, it's a little bit smaller. They're basically the exact same thing, though. They're a little bit smaller. And if, I even have some other stuff recommended for you. Let's say, like, like 47 bucks, dude, it's too much. Um, the Corona 6250. At 28 bucks would be my number two pick, and my number three pick would be the Corona 7100D at about $20. Um, both of those are okay. They're, they're quality for what they are. They will not last you for your entire life. Uh, a, a Felco F2 will. At some point, you might want to replace the blade in it, and the blade is designed to be replaced. But, I mean, they literally last forever. If you go to a nursery where a guy prunes you know, a couple hundred trees a day every day all spring long, uh, and packing packing stuff up for shipment and all the bare roots and everything, I guarantee you what's going to be in his hand is a pair of Felco FTs. That's why I recommend them. But, the, you know, if you don't do a lot of pruning, the Coronas are, are quality. If you say, oh, well, I don't even want to spend 25 bucks, then go buy generic ones and replace them every year. Because there's just nothing below the Corona 7100 that I would even recommend that you purchase. Just just honest. All right. Uh, with that, remember, no matter what you purchase on tspaz.com, you help support us and the work that we do. And, again, the, the, the Felcos are on sale right now. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. John Adam has a song uh, queued up for us today called The Wild and the Young by Quiet Riot. This is off of an album called QR3, released in the 80s. And uh, it was the album that came out after Mental Health, which was absolutely Quiet Riot's biggest hit. And even though they called it QR3, it was their fifth album. Go figure. Um, this song is about the concept that one day evil will rise up and shut down rock and roll. There's a movement to make rock and roll no more. Um, and the concept is the wild and the young fight back against it. And that might sound a little... You know, far out, and I don't try. To, I'm not trying to say it like, uh, like a '60s hippie thing or '70s hippie thing or anything like that. I just, I mean, far out. Like, yeah, really, there's a war on rock and roll. I mean, you know, well, at the time this song came out, there were a lot of songs in this vein. Um, there was a, a big movement to censor uh, music. 
Anything from warning levels to outright saying certain things could not be in, you know, produced music. Um, a lot of rock stars ended up in front of uh, Congress testifying. Tipper Gore got involved with this. And even some of the really, you know, thought of as wholesome artists like John Denver. We're like, hell no. We're not giving in to any of this. And we did come away with, you know, album warning labels out of it. And that was about as far as it went. Uh, trust me, they wanted more. They wanted to, uh, not just control certain things, you know, certain words being considered adult content, like just certain, like there should be a board that reviews this song and says, no, it's too adult content because of the ideas versus just the words. Well, that becomes very subjective. So in a very real way, there was a role on a war on rock and roll because if you start telling musicians how to produce what they're producing, they're not creating it anymore. You are. And I think that's why there's always been kind of an alignment between the concept of liberty and music. And music has always been such a great tool um, to fight against tyranny. And sometimes it's been a tool for tyranny. Music has been kind of like a guide on is in the military. You see a formation marching and there's a guy holding a flag. That flag is not the commander, but it represents the commander of that unit. And that guide on guides the formation. That's why they call it that. Well, in many ways, many movements have had certain songs or certain types of music as their guide on a symbolic thing that represented where you were going. And, you know, this isn't the greatest piece of music or anything like that, but that's the vein that it's coming from. And it is good, just good, good old-fashioned freaking 1980s hairband rock and roll, and that's a great thing to go out with on a Friday. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.